Welcome to the Mark Cameron Show. We have conversations with people making their mark, we discover how they do it and what the future of their work is. This week my guest is Harry Mulligan. Harry's an addiction and eating disorders practitioner, psychodynamic counsellor and untire of knots. He's also a music journalist who writes for Louder Than War and does interviews for Noisy, the musical counterpart of Vice magazine. This guy inspires me with his passion for recovery. Enjoy the conversation. Here's to the kombucha and the chat. Thanks so much for uh, hanging out and being up for the chat. Tell me about this kombucha that I've got. I'm very interested in yeah, this. Yes, I think it's made from a root, so it's uh, mildly fermented, but it's very it's a living organism, so it's very good for your digestive tract and yeah. all that. And it's a good little tonic during yeah. the winter months. It's very tasty. Thank you. <laughs> we're chatting. We're we're both exploring doing a, a keto diet at some point Absolutely. in the next little while. And um, love it. You, you've had a real interest in nutrition and in um, the, the stuff that helps people get better. That seems to be a big part of your life. What what's that been about for you? Well, I think you have to treat people in all their domains. Uh, so, so going back to university, my university days at Bristol, uh, we were, the, the cutting edge stuff was uh, using a biopsychosocial model. Right. Um, so you're treating the whole person. Uh, you're, you're treating their physicality or physiology mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you're also treating their psychology and their thinking and how they think and what's what's maladaptive thinking and yeah. what's adaptive healthy thinking uh, you're dealing with their emotions a lot of people run into tro- trouble navigating their way through life uh, because they don't know how to manage mm-hmm. uh, or live with their emotional self yeah and it can cause a lot of problems um, yeah. addiction most addiction is about not feeling Wow, how does how does that work? That's really interesting. Um, there are many there's there's many routes uh, to addiction, but quite often there'll be abuse. Uh, the abuses that are accompanied by very intense emotions, mm. uh, and often a person trying to navigate their way through that, or or even trying to just sit with and live with their emotions. Uh, will not be able to do that and they will have a recourse to mood alter using alcohol, using other substances that are in their environment, Mm. cannabis, stronger narcotics, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, prescription medications are a huge problem. So quite often when people get into addictive problems, uh, it's because they're having emotions that they don't like and they would rather mm. not feel them. Yeah, okay. And that's what leads to then a depend- masking over. And- it leads to dependency. Mm-hmm. So part of what they need within their own coping repertoire uh, to live from day to day is a preferred substance or behaviour that's making it easier for them to live with how they're feeling from day to day. Yeah. Add on top of that, 
whether or not the person has non-secure attachment from infancy, which is often the foundation for somebody to have addictions or dependencies later on, mm. will be founded on the, the, the basis that they have had early relationships where their primary or secondary carers are absent. Right. Emotionally absent, because they're addicts themselves as well. Are physically absent because they're gone. They're yeah. uh, not present. They're in prison. They're elsewhere. Uh, uh-huh. So, so you, so if somebody is the child of an alcoholic, or the child of an addict, in their first couple of years of life, in the early attachment years, mm. they'll have a non-secure style of attachment right. that they'll carry into adulthood, yeah. and it will affect all the relationships. In the future, how um, how long does that take to happen? Do you think in a child, I'd, like, I'd, is everyone a bit screwed, or I would say it's de- longer term. It's developed by the time they're five. Okay, you know, so we're talking about the primary attachment with the mother mainly. Yeah, uh, I'm not dismissing the validity or importance of dads because dads are very important as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mainly the the relationship with the mother uh, is key in uh, the early attachment years. Mm-hmm. There was a, a guy called John Bowlby who studied primates and he was able to see that the ones where the mother was absent uh, were less well adaptive and less secure wow. in themselves and would later develop behavioural problems. Right. So the, the work the work and the insights we've gained as practitioners were kind of coming out of the work by this guy, John Bowlby, who yeah. observed primates. Because they're mammals as well, and yeah. they're very close to us. Yeah. Um, and how they form attachments uh, with their children, their mammals, they breastfeed. Yeah. So, uh, so, there's, so it's a minefield, but usually... Research suggests that people with full-on poly drug misuse addictions will, as a generalization, have early attachment issues. Right. Wow. So. And what what were you seeing as the impact of a holistic approach to addiction? That what got you interested in seeing that biopsychosocial approach was more effective with. Um, you know, helping people that had had attachment Even just a review of the the literature would suggest that the most holistic, uh, whole Mm. uh, approach would to to look at all aspects of a person. So as as I added on at the beginning, uh, I would add spiritual uh, into that, biopsychosocial, spiritual. Yeah. Uh, and that being a key facet that's been neglected, uh, I believe that we don't have a soul, that we are a soul. Mm. So we're spiritual beings who also have a body. Yeah. Uh, even, even the early attachment between a mother and a baby is very physical. Yeah. Uh, it, it relies and is founded on being in close proximity to each other where they're able to hold each other yeah uh, and and there's a nurturing in that 
that's the very foundation of healthy living as a mammal. Mm. And without it, if it's neglected, it can set a person up through their lifespan development yeah. from a place of deficit, of, yeah. of lack and of need. Yeah. My mum, she used to run a charity that was working in Romania and orphanages. So you And they would see go it. out. Exactly. They would you go would out and um, the, the job was go in the place and hold the children. You know, it was physical contact. Absolutely. Responding to the call and the cries. and so So even... More recently, in The Lancet, I've read an article, uh, a very significant scientific piece about the weight of the brains of child orphans in Romania. Ooh. And they are, their brains, uh, when they've been weighed after death, yeah. have been much significantly lighter than a well-adapted person. So this is to do with physical brain development? That's coming during during the nurturing years and it's missed by a lot of these kids because they don't have the time and proximity with their mother or or they may have been separated at a time when they would have been breastfeeding. Yes. Um, So they're starting from a place of lack. Yeah. This is huge. So what, what is it that for you, has given this, uh, you found meaning in this work and in these purposes. How did you come into that? So basically, I'm, I'm a person who's in recovery myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll probably say I have some of those non-secure attachment issues. Not as extreme as an orphan, but I, I'm 9th out of 10 children. Right. Right, and my younger brother was born a year and a month and four days after I was born. Right. So there's very little yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would probably say I have those generic uh, non-secure attachment issues, mm. just, mm-hmm. just, just matter of factly. Yeah. Um, and have had to work through some of that stuff yeah. in therapy. Uh, so I also, I also. Uh, developed a dependency on substances including alcohol, cannabis and later polydrug misuse issues with much stronger narcotics um, as well mostly in in Oregon the United States where where I went to grade school junior high school and high school Right, so did you move Um, over there? We we emigrated there, my father worked for the Rolls-Royce Aero Division on the West Coast in Scotland mm. and he was then he then ended up working with Boeing Aerospace on the West Coast in Portland, Oregon oh. uh, and was such a highly skilled, needed essential type of worker that they were happy to bring yeah. him and his wife, my mum and ten kids out there um, Jet to yourselves for that, yeah <laughs> wow and and what was the life like there which you it's, experienced you know what it's, um, I, I had even though there was 10 of us and that, that kind of makes it difficult to devote uh, maybe the required nurturing to every one of us we always were well turned out and went to the best right. schools my dad um, I grew up as a Catholic my father was uh father and mother 
were both virgins when they married and they went right through life not having known anybody uh-huh. else uh-huh. intimately uh-huh. than each other. And but uh, So I always went to uh, good private Catholic schools. I went to a good private uh, grade school out there and then I went to a central Catholic high school in Portland, Oregon. Right. was expelled when four joints came out of my shirt pocket and landed <laughs> on the desk. How did they fall out? <laughs> I was pulling a history assignment oh, out no. my shirt pocket and boom, four joints on the desk. Gosh. And, and, and I, my US history teacher, Mr. Chapman, he was just such a lovely guy. He was so angry marching me down the hall uh, with these four joints. Yeah. And it happened on his watch. And, yeah. and I was sent home expelled that day. Wow. Um, okay which was a kind of pivotal moment for aye, me. Aye. Where, where did life go after that? I went to a public high school, US Grant High School. I continued to smoke pot. Uh, I was kicked out of a moving car one day, scoring some pot. Um, and then I started to get involved in the music scene in Portland mm. uh, very heavily. Right. I had been uh, training as a drummer. Uh, at the Catholic, Central Catholic High School, I was training uh, in percussion and keyboard percussion. So I was doing like the trap set and marimbas, xylophones, yeah. and all that type of yeah. keyboard, keyboard percussion. Yeah. Um, so I I kind of fell in. I was so when I was expelled, I, I went for a while to the, the public high school. I didn't like it. I dropped out. Got a job in a restaurant and started to. Uh, started to meet people on the music scene through mm. my older brothers because I had four older brothers right. who were in their 20s and they were out on the tiles all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I gradually met everybody in the music community there. Wow. Uh, who was coming through at that time? What was the feel of the, of the music business then? Was, uh, in Portland, has always been uh, an incredible cohort during my time hmm. of music people. So it was pre-grunge then, Class, you know, it would right. have been like late 70s. Yeah. And it was pre-grunge and guys like Robert Cray, yeah. uh, black blues guitarist. And, and then you started to see some of the pre-grunge bands coming through, like the Wipers, who were post-punk pre-grunge. Yeah. Oh, and... But with this culture that was there was there was also uh, the presence of Mexican tar heroin and there was a, a a subculture of musos using opiates. Yeah. Uh, and I ended up falling into this. Aye. Aye. And started because I had I had had my jaw broken, uh, protecting a girl downtown, oh, uh, and had my jaw broke hit with a like a. A little club, Ugh. and I was prescribed opiate painkillers, and that's how I got into right. opiates. Yeah, uh, were they just too readily available beyond the prescription at that point? Just they were. If you were in, if you were involved with the some of the music people, sure, uh, they were they were using them. One or two of them were on methadone, yeah. things like that. So it was just very easily accessible uh-huh. and something that uh-huh. I just unfortunately fell into 
And by that point, um, my mother had to take my dad home to Scotland to die, basically. Mm. He'd been in a car wreck and he'd suffered some cognitive uh, issues mm. and he was he was showing signs of premature dementia. And so she took him home. So myself and my younger brother were kind of, we refused to go back. Yeah. And we were kind of rudderless. Uh, with just older brothers yeah, normally right. looking out for us yeah, yeah. Um, and kind of fell in as you hear so many stories about it uh, fell into that kind of culture uh-huh. yeah. um, and it was, it was it's the late 70s so you've, you've already seen some of the uh, some of that stuff become quite cool mm-hmm. in New York and uh, yeah so it wasn't healthy, really. Uh-huh. Okay. And the whole grunge scene, the whole grunge scene was kind of founded on it. Uh, Kurt Cobain, yeah. Courtney Love, Cat Galen from Babes in Toyland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. about right. Yeah. So, so, so I fell into that yeah. in the eighties, uh, and without. Uh, gilding the lily or over laboring the point or or in any way glamorizing it because that's what i really don't want to do mm. at all because it wasn't cool mm-hmm. uh, using those substances at that time in america it's only a matter of time before you venture into criminality and okay. that's what happened to me and i started to uh, get little sentences that grew bigger sentences yeah, and, yeah. and then ended with me being sentenced to two five-year sentences in the penitentiary mm-hmm. uh, and at the end of which I was taken into custody by the federal forces yeah. uh, and convicted of moral turpitude yeah. and, uh, and what deported. was that like yeah what, what was that like for you in that point in your life because on, on the surface of the memory, people think, oh, Portland, the grunge thing emerging, that's all this phenomenal culture. But what was it like for you when you were in it's that horrible. place? Yeah. It's horrible because really when you get stuck in that kind of uh, vicious circle, uh, it becomes quite serious. Uh, so what started uh, uh, as, a, as a musician dabbling with drugs ended up as an addict dabbling with music. Yeah. So it steals everything from you. Yeah. Um, it also got more serious because we also, concurrently, during the 80s in America, what you started to see happen was that Pablo Escobar mm. was flooding America with narcotics. Yeah. And it was, in a way, weaponized. Jeez. Uh, how, how did they do that? Did they... It Did was you just over the border, or was it? It was being, it was coming in everywhere. Right. It was coming over the border from Mexico and up through Central America. Yeah. Uh, and did they it grow it in the states and Portland and areas in, as well? Then in and Mexico. Okay. Yeah. No, they weren't growing any of Aye. like opium poppies or coca leaves in Oregon. No, yeah. everything was coming in from South America. Okay. And Central America. Yeah. Because a lot of the stuff that was coming up from South America was going right through Central America yeah. and then over the Mexican-US border. Yeah. 
thus you've seen all this stuff about Trump's wall yeah. now. So it's been a huge pit. It's been a huge issue in America since the well before the eighties. Yeah. They were also flying it in yeah. from Cuba and places like that, wherever they could land a plane, plane between South America yeah. and North America. Yeah. Um, it was coming in everywhere. Yeah. They were producing so much of it. Uh, and it was very high quality. Uh, they were they were seizing heroin that was like ninety something percent, and the same oh, with the cocaine. And the, and and Pablo Escobar had weaponized yeah. these narcotics to damage American society. Did, so uh, this is you know there's been a lot about him recently through um, he's got the show Narcos, American made Tom Cruise yeah, movie, and yeah. do you think? There was a a nation, almost like a national agenda behind some of that to damage Absolutely. America. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. More recently, I also think uh, that we've seen a lot of weaponized legal highs come into Scotland mm-hmm. uh, and different places in the planet that have come directly from China. And it's my view that these legal highs, spice... Yeah. All the stuff that's causing huge mental health yeah. issues and uh, the subjects who are getting access to them, uh, they're weaponized. I don't. I don't think I'm being cynical uh-huh. in thinking that. It's very self-evident to me, being a mental health practitioner yes. working in addiction, to look at people in cities in the UK like Manchester on how their homeless populations have exploded and how their mental health has deteriorated Mm -hmm. looking at these weaponized legal highs Mm -hmm. that are prevalent everywhere. I was so overjoyed. I was jumping for joy when Police Scotland banned legal highs and took them out of the shops. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Gosh, so that's the really interesting of if you want to damage a rival society or if you have a... A, a large scale agenda to cause harm to your enemy and profit like crazy out of it. Flood them with drugs, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you got there was loads of that going on. There was a point in your life then where it sounded like it sort of just spiraled down. You were so when I came home to the UK yeah. after being deported in February fifth, nineteen eighty eight. I had a couple of years still using and drinking, uh, anaesthetizing my feelings, mm. essentially, because by that time my dad had died. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't grieved his death. I hadn't grieved anything that I'd lost because I was anaesthetized yes. with very strong narcotics. And um, I was also committing petty crime, acquisitive theft mm-hmm. in order to get the substances I was addicted to. Yeah. Um, and then by 1990, I, uh, my, the emotions that I was repressing were just coming up. Hmm. Uh, they were, it's, it's like if, if, you, if you can visualize a basketball, yeah. if you hold a basketball yeah. under water, Eventually, your arms are going to get tired, yeah. and you can't keep the ball under water. And then, when you let it go, it'll just shoot sure. straight up. Yeah, and that's what my emotions were like at that point. So I would be out shoplifting in London, mm-hmm. 
or whatever I was doing, and I'd find myself just bursting into tears. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the grief and loss just started coming up yeah. on its own. Through the grace of God, two people who were outreach workers in North London and Camden uh, seen what I was cycling through every day. Wow. And they uh, 12-stepped me into treatment. So the 12-step so was the first two, start. Well, uh, they were both members of 12-step fellowships who also worked on the cutting edge doing outreach work on yeah. the streets um, and they grabbed me and they helped me wade through all the admin to get into treatment oh. to get the funding to go into treatment um, but it was also at a time where I was absolutely ripe and ready to stop using yeah. um, and so I, I w- ended up going into a place called the St. Joseph Centre for Addiction, right? Uh, which was in Hazelmere in Surrey. Uh, and I had what I would, what the Greeks call a metanoia experience. Okay. What does so metanoia mean? Metanoia is having a change of heart. It's a bit like Ebenezer Scrooge <laughs> yeah. on yeah. Christmas Eve, what he cycles through with the three ghosts. Yeah. And he has that change of heart metanoia experience wow. during the night. Yeah. And come Christmas morning, he's seen the world with new eyes. So I I ended up, you know, I was ready to stop. Aye. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Aye. And I went off into treatment. And with uh, the most wonderful uh, practitioners yeah. who helped me there... Yeah. Um, But what I would add as a caveat uh, is that these people who were working at this St. Joseph Centre for Addiction, it's no longer open anymore. Um, the head of treatment was uh, Lindy Cornblam, and she was doing a doctorate at Roehampton on codependency and right. addiction. Um, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. And they were employing the most bleeding edge interventions to help people uh, what would they do they were they were devising very uh, well thought out treatment plans Uh, you were doing a lot of the emotional labour work in one to ones with your therapist yeah Uh, and they were also facilitating group therapy in such a way that it was uh excellent for the people in treatment mm. it was full of love and care oh. uh, and sensitivity yeah. uh, and they also used a family systemic approach okay so you they're looking at the whole family as an organism right uh, quite often when there's an addict in the family or more than one addict they can quite often be uh, scapegoated mm-hmm. the black sheep mm-hmm. so they were looking at the whole family system right um, a lot of like was that a Virginia Satir pioneered a lot of that work. Who? A Virginia Satir. I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't heard a lot of that. work in the families. Right, okay. right. All right. Um, um, and what and what was it like then? You know, so to be in that place where you have people who are totally devoted to your 
well-being. best well-being and you are experiencing some kind of transformative time where you've decided to like pull your life together and to take up like a load of responsibility for changing and making a, a difference what what was that like being in there it was uh, hard hitting mm. it, it really impacted on me enormously um, it was at my it was at that time in my uh, 18 weeks or so that I was there that I made a decision to go into education yeah and read psychology at least. So I went off to a secondary care place up in the Cotswolds, uh, which was beautiful as yeah. well, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to Stroud and spent uh, the next year there, uh, did an access course to social sciences and applied applied uh, to, to read psychology and sociology yeah. in Bristol. Yeah. Which was which is a red which is a red brick Russell Group University, yeah. so the so that that joint honours degree was like about three thousand applicants for six places, um, wow. and tutors at Stroud College were like, you've got high hopes, <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> um, but I had a funny experience. Uh, I went up to Bristol on one of my days off and spoke to one of the admissions tutors um, just to kind of touch bases with them. In fact, I talked to the admissions tutor from sociology, Dr. Steve Fenton, and uh, the admissions tutor from psychology, Dr. Jan Mandela, uh, who was a statistician. Uh, to kind of ask them to look out for my ACAS form. Yeah. You know, being manipulative and <laughs> wanting to cover every base. And, um, so I got called up for an interview and I had an interview with Dr. Fenton, the first the sociology lecturer. Uh, and I'm, I've walked into his office and I'm looking around at the stuff on the walls yeah. and it's save the miners and wow. so I had kind of some inferential basis <laughs> kind of about him uh -huh. so he's asked me to talk about a subject re relevant to sociology and so I talked about the NHS being the ornament of society yeah. in Britain <laughs> and, and, and that part of the interview went really well and then I went to see Dr. Mandela. Dr. Mandela was different, so I spoke to, I started speaking to him. The first thing that he asked me was, I see on your UCAS statement that you're a recovering al alcoholic. And I said, yeah, that's correct. He says, and then he started crying in the interview. Mm. And he says, I'm drinking about a bottle of vodka every morning. Uh, and I'm really not having a good time. How did you stop? Wow. So I started talking to him about Alcoholics Anonymous and yeah. meetings and the 12-step program. And then he, he came in at the end and he says, well, you know, uh, that's all for now. Uh, don't call <laughs> us. We'll call you. We'll look out for... Uh, a letter from Akas in due course and and the kind of I got dismissed and right. 
I went home to Stroud and two days later, unconditional offers popped oh through the goodness, post. Cool. Yeah. So I've talked to my tutors at uh, Stroud College and I've got the day off because I, want, I wanted to go up and thank them personally. Nice. Uh, and so I went to Dr. Fenton's first. I kind of developed a rapport with him mm-hmm. with the mining, save the mm-hmm. miners and all mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, and I liked him. And so I went to him and I said, you know, I just wanted to come up and thank you. You don't know how much this means to me, uh, especially with as many applicants as yeah. there were. Yeah. Um, and he says, "No, you 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 were offered a place on your own merit." Brilliant. You know, and, yeah. Uh, and then I said at the end, "Well, I'm going to go see Doctor Mandela and thank him and for a head back." Sure. And he's got up from his desk and grabbed his coat, started putting it on, says, "Let's go for a coffee. I need to talk to you." Oh, okay. Um, we got to the staff canteen we sat down and he says after after your interview finished dr mandela came to see me and said he was going off to an alcoholics anonymous meeting wow and he died at the meeting oh my god he died at the aa meeting and this used to knock me down with a feather. Aye. Uh, oh my God. He said, but before yeah. before going to that meeting, I've been doing this joint honours uh, school interviews for the past 15 years with Jan Mandela. And he has never, ever agreed to admit a mature student onto that wow. scheme. Wow. And as I was processing this yeah. in the coming weeks, I realised that this get this guy had headed off to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting uh, with the idea that there was hope he could stop. Mm. Uh, so that was a really crystallised spiritual experience. That that's whole huge. thing. That's huge for you. Um, yeah. And I think since that time. I've wanted to devote my own professional development yeah. to taking people's chemical handcuffs off. Yeah. And that's probably wow. that's probably uh, what I'm very passionate about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and what I do, you know. Yeah. So, so after I finished my degree, the the biggest addiction expert, Maverick. In the UK was a guy called Dr. Robert Lefevre. Okay. And he was the founder of Promise, which was probably the biggest, most renowned 12-step treatment centre in the UK. Um, And I'd been watching this guy's videos. Yeah, okay. um, I slung him an email and I said, I really want to come work for you. And... He asked me to come for an interview mm. in South Kensington in his doctor's surgery because this he, he was like a lively NHS and private right. co- yeah. consultancy doctor, GP. And I came and met with him and he 
who took me on as a trainee. Wow. Addiction counsellor. Yep. So I went in and uh, was shadowing him really uh-huh. in all his... Uh-huh. Usually they sent their trainees to Nonington, Kent, where their big treatment centre is. But they have the Promise Counselling Centre and Secondary Care Centres in yeah. Kendrick's Mews in South Kensington. Right. I, I was based there. And what what were what, you looking for when like when you're watching someone at that level? What do you look for in their practice and their skill and their insight? To be honest, I was fascinated by Dr. Lefevre because he was the absolute pinnacle uh, of addiction treatment in Britain mm-hmm. um, and I found it very peculiar that he'd that coming from a medical scientific background as he did that he had so uh, wholeheartedly embraced the 12 steps uh, mm. and based that as the model mm-hmm. uh, for which he was treating patients yeah. uh, that came in my experience at that point with the 12 steps was excellent as yeah. well. So I, I loved the model. Um, but I was also looking at other things that he did. Um, the part that confused me was that he, he had embraced the 12 steps, yet he was a militaristic atheist. Right. <laughs> no belief in a higher power or... A lot of it comes down to semantics. He's, yeah. he's always proclaimed himself to be an atheist. Uh, but I think that he, if you spoke to him now, he, he has a belief in the group, a great mm. belief in the group. Mm. <clears throat> so if you're thinking about power greater than yourself, yes, and I often use this analogy that I got from him actually, uh, if you take one stick and you break it, it's easy to break yeah. one stick. But if you take eight sticks yeah. in a group and you try to break a bunch of eight sticks, yeah. it's not happening. It's not happening. Nah. So the stick is representative of one individual person. Mm-hmm. And, that, and eight sticks, it's very visual for yeah. me how to demonstrate that yeah. a group is a power greater than yourself. If you can't grasp the notion of a loving, caring God. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, That's a brilliant, tangible way for people to it's also, make sense of that. It's a, it's, it's a very uh, tangible way to get somebody from being a secular, existential, uh, non-believing atheist to a place of non-belief that's militaristic yeah. and it's dogmatism. Um, from there to belief in a power greater than yourself that yeah. loves and cares about you, right. which in a group therapy situation is quite easy to reach. Yeah. And then from there to belief in a power in the universe uh-huh. that is uh, loving and caring. Yeah. Because those are the only two prerequisites in the literature mm-hmm. that are required 
<coughs> that you need to find a power greater than yourself and it needs to be loving and caring. Mm. And not malevolent and... Yeah, yeah. and dark and... <laughs> yeah, after you. Wow. wow. <coughs> so, yeah, you're in this in this amazing place studying under the, the person. Um, how do you take all that experience and, and launch into your own um, practices or... Um, you start affecting others in a really well, positive way I, I spent this. the next couple of years learning the practicalities and mechanics of facilitating groups yeah. which is probably uh, for me the core of my practice is yeah. to facilitate group therapy and I employ different m- models and schools of thought yeah and, and they take time to to learn yeah uh, but also i'm coming into this clinical setting with a joint honors degree from a top russell group university <coughs> where i had did uh where i had did developmental psychology mm-hmm. for three years because that's where my focus was rather than a lot of the cognitive stuff. Yeah. Um, so the, the early attachment stuff, things like that that we spoke about earlier, yeah. was the, the, the stuff that piqued my interest. Yeah. But also the developing person from cradle to grave was what I kind of really focused my studies on. Oh, okay. And, uh, developmental psych. Uh, because the, the person's changing and developing. Yeah. Um, and and so academically as an undergraduate, I'm learning also about I'm learning also about uh, individual differences in people, uh, as well as the generic com commonalities in people. Yeah. Uh, I think that you need to be able to look at the individual differences in people hugely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you're constructing a treatment plan. Yeah, right. Um, and also, I I was uh, by the time I graduated, <coughs> excuse me, I had I was very scientific and data driven. Yeah. Uh, everything needed to be data driven. We got that hammered into us. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That if it's not evidence based and it's not data driven, and you can't justify the intervention that you're using, uh, throw it out. Throw it out. It's not useful. Yes. It's not going to work. That did me a lot of good. Okay. Um, I was also able to watch Dr. Robert. Uh, as he was learning and training in, for example, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization, and it's an intervention that's used to treat trauma. Well, right. How do you? How does it work? It's following the finger uh-huh. of the practitioner, and while you're following the finger, you're speaking to the client, and you're debriefing their trauma. Uh, as they tell you about the trauma- traumatic event, yeah. they're following the finger. Wow. So this is called EMDR. I watched Robert while he was developing as a practitioner and all these things, because this guy's a science-based guy, yeah. uh, and he's a doctor. 
Uh, and these are, at the time, the cut and bleeding edge interventions for things like trauma. Uh, I was also getting a lot of uh, exposure to things that go on for clients physiologically. Uh, so, so if somebody's checking in on a group, I'll be asking them to check in yeah. with their body. Yeah. Right. So I will I will do a body scan at the beginning of a group therapy session. Oh. Body scan is where you're taking people, their eyes are closed, they're focusing on the breathing, yes. inhale, exhale, and then I'm taking them from feeling the soles of their feet yeah. on the ground. How do your feet feel? Is there any tingling, any sensations in your feet? And as you exhale, release it, and I'm taking them up, up the shins, the yeah. thighs, yeah. buttocks in the seat. How does the seat feel under your bum? Yeah. And all the way up the body to the top of the head. Wow. Uh, so we call that a body scan. Yeah. And, and that's grounding people in their body. Yeah. Because is there a disassociation from the body? There is. To, is it often to the mind? Or? Often to the mind. So you get people who will use as a means to disengage from their emotions, will go upstairs yes. and be in a cerebral domain. Yeah. And they, people can live in their heads. Yeah. You can quite, I've done it. People can quite easily live in their heads. Some people, if they're dissociative, can leave their body altogether. Yeah. And they'll be out the window or way off somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very easy to do. Uh, so quite often, if I'm... If I'm starting any new kind of activity, I'll start with a breathing meditation and grounding people in their mm. body with a body scan yeah. to, to help them be here and now in the present moment. Yeah, because there seems to be something about people, whether it's in a group or one-to-one, -one, someone who is present to you in that moment that is, is listening, that is for you, there seems to be a healing component to that or transformative component to that okay. which is close to inexplicable it seems I would call that synergy right so when you have a group of people I mean to put it in biblical terms uh, wherever two of you are gathered in my mm -hmm. name I mm -hmm. am there right so uh, I believe when you're working in a group with a number of individuals um, and you're doing good work together. That there's a there's a, there's 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 an extra member there. Yeah. That's unseen, and science of psychology would call that synergy. Right. Other people would call it God yeah. or a higher power. Yeah. Or a higher consciousness. Or, there's lots of secular yes. semantics that you can use to make it palatable uh -huh. to anybody. Yeah. But for me, uh, I really fell in love with doing group work because of this unseen member mm. that's mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's where the magic occurs. Yeah. Yeah. And then is that uh, how do you become how do you become conscious of that unseen member in the space? Well, I first became conscious of it being present in twelve step meetings. Yeah. Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, uh, 
Cocaine Anonymous. Uh, I, I became aware of it in those where I had a few like hair standing up moments well, and was yeah. like, oh my God. Uh, and you'll hear anecdotally people talk about it from 12-step groups. And mm-hmm. Carl mm. Jung talks about it, uh, yeah. the, psycho- the Swiss psychologist. But I, I watched Dr. Robert Lefevre run groups for a couple of years and this guy he one of the aspects of his group facilitation is he's a psychodramatist Hmm. (coughs) so somebody's talking about oh this happened and he would stop them in their tracks and say okay pick somebody to be your mum pick somebody to be your sister yeah and he'd do the psychodrama Oh, so you get them playing the out the roles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then at the end of it, he'd say, okay, Mick, debrief yourself. I'm not Charlotte's brother. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. So debrief them at the end. But quite often, uh, he would do these psychodrama sketches uh, with the person's issue that yeah. they were trying to work through. And you'd see it in a the, the person that, who brought it into the group would see it in a totally different way and some beautiful. penny would drop yeah. and it'd be like, Eureka! <laughs> it's beautiful. So, so it's, yeah, it's, yeah, to watch that. So I've always used a lot of psychodrama right, right. in my groups. Um, so, you know, you, you've had these amazing experiences continually and, and, and you see that. What, what does it look like for you now? How... What, what do you get excited about or really interested about when you sit in a group to think, what are you, what tools or ideas do you, are you playing with now, are you exploring? At the moment, over the last couple of years, I've been working at a clinic in Zurich in Switzerland. Uh, I've also been working at Drug and Alcohol Rehab Asia in Thailand. I was about 10 months there. Um, Then I was in Iran for five months with a football club and three British British and Irish footballers uh, who had problems. Um, And I've had such a fantastic few years. Yeah. Yeah, that I kind of felt a wee bit guilty about it, <laughs> and so I've I've come home and I've made a decision to give a season to the Bethany Shelter here in oh, Edinburgh. Okay, uh, as a way of giving something back. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got a wee daughter Willow in Lovely. Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, who I've made a decision to. Uh, remain here I've also got a, a, a two sons in England James yeah. and William yeah. William's 13 I've also uh, he said he's said to me over the last couple of years dad I'd like you to work closer to home yeah wow so I've kind of I've kind of you know heard that yeah him saying that yeah so I'm trying to be much more present for my children, yeah, including my twenty-four-year-old James, yeah, yeah. Um, and I've kind of committed to not going abroad to work, 
So I don't really know what's going yeah. to happen. Wow. Um, I would love uh, to get a wing in a prison, be given a wing in a prison, okay. to run as a drug-free wing yeah. and turn it into a treatment centre. Wow. Uh, just putting that out there. Love uh, it. So if someone's running a wing in a prison, <laughs> then you get in touch. Yeah. 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 I love that. I've also put some feelers out. Okay. Uh, with some people in prison ministry and yeah. uh, prison Scotland and yeah. police Scotland. Great. Um, I would love to be able to put a team together to run a drug-free wing wow. uh, and address some of the issues that are generating mortality and morbidity rates in Scotland that are unacceptable to me. Mm-hmm. The amount of drug deaths due to polydrug misuse in Scotland are totally unacceptable yeah. it's the highest in Europe and it's un- it's really unacceptable right. and I think that we need to do something more what would more look like treatment there there the, 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 the biggest best treatment centre in Scotland is Castle Craig Hospital and people's Castle Craig is the preferred, the preferred treatment provider for the US military in Europe. All their guys that are traumatised in the Middle East, yeah. in Afghanistan, Iraq, all go wow. to Castle Craig. What do they do that's so strong? All the stuff that's... Uh, well, they'll do the EMDR for trauma and PTSD and things like that. But they have a very good clinical team there. But it's not accessible to Scottish residents or garden variety addicts from Scotland. Okay. Yeah. So they have a huge population that comes from the Netherlands yeah. with government funding. Uh, but our indigenous addicts in Scotland don't have access to Castle Craig because it's too expensive. Okay. Um, so we need to make treatment more accessible uh, yep. to just ordinary garden variety drug addicts in Scotland. Yep. And I think it's, it's a shame that they don't get the kind of treatment yeah. that they need. Yeah. I would love to be able to uh, make it more accessible. What, the, yeah, what would, it, what would it take? I mean, this is an area I'm not familiar with, but it sounds like funding yeah or or making treatment more accessible by training up practitioners to run units yeah more units yeah that don't that don't cost 12,000 pounds a week yeah yeah you know so we need treatment units uh, where people are getting access to treatment and where maybe uh training up teams and de-skilling the work yeah. to a degree to make it easier to train them up oh. uh, and license, license, making it easier for us to license them as practitioners yeah. Yeah. to work. Um, quite often an issue uh, is that the best practitioners are recovering addicts themselves. Yeah. Okay. So it's quite often they come uh, with they come with police records, criminal records, uh, so making it easier for them uh, 
to be admitted on to PVG groups protecting vulnerable adults yeah. and vulnerable kids. Yeah. So making it a little uh, easier for them to access yeah. those if they have criminal pasts. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And in in the future of um, you know treatment and recovery, it seems to me that there are more things available for people to get addicted to quicker. So say like social media, your phone, this is something, you know, like dopamine hits from all that. Um, so so what, what what's coming in the future with this stuff? What do we need to get ready for? The future's here. Uh, if you're training as an addiction practitioner, you will be trained in uh, substance addictions and process addictions. Right. So what's a process so, addiction? So, so a process addiction is being, is where the person is, like you've just described, getting right. a dopamine yeah. serotonin hit from activities. Well. Uh, I'll, I'll start with a definition. My definition uh, of addiction is a pathological relationship with a mood-altering substance yeah. or experience right. that has life-threatening consequences. Wow. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right? Yep. So, so the most obvious ones would be alcohol and substances. Actually, alcohol is the worst yeah. because it has the most damaging, destructive effect on the person's physiology yeah. and, their, and, and the brain, the mind. Uh, it's it's by far head and shoulders above any other substance. Yeah. Um, wow. So you've got alcohol that I put probably at the top of the list, especially yeah. in Scotland because it's such a cultural thing to drink. Yeah. You know, I've yeah, heard people say, I don't trust people that don't drink. <laughs> That's how much <laughs> of an issue it is here. That's right. You know? <laughs> uh, but then you have substances However, the, the highest suicide rates come as a result of sex addiction. Sex addiction... What? Uh, right. Sex addiction, real sex addiction, is devastating on the person, leaves them to such despair that they'll often... They have the highest incidence of suicide. Uh. So that's the first process addiction. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and it could be a, a, a sex addiction where they never even meet another person. Right. So it can be porn. Yeah. You're talking about porn. Uh, that that will just... They're not engaging with the present here and yeah. now yeah. if they're lost in that world. Yeah. Prostitutes. Uh, it's huge. Mm. Um, wow. So many apps for dating and... Yeah. All, all that, the whole domain has blown up in yeah. the digital world and become a beast on its own, uh, a, be a beast in its own right. Yeah. You've, gambling uh, is probably the hardest to treat. Okay. Right? Why is that? <sighs> it's so insidious. Uh-huh. Uh, it's very, it's insidious, it's legal, it's, it's been really, really targeted because of the digital realm yeah. as well. Yeah. So I've worked recently with uh, a gambler and I've looked 
at their invoice mm-hmm. for the money that they've spent with the gambling app. And it's been like that. In one day, yeah. 500, 500, 500, 500, 500, 500 yeah. bets. Yeah. On a phone. On a phone. Without even going out the house or wherever yeah. they are. Jeez, that's so that's huge. Right. So the 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 level of destruction on the family. Uh, the mind boggles. Yeah. It can. And it is unless they get treatment, it's so hard to stop. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's purely getting a hit. Yeah. So adrenaline. Is there is there ways that as society think we are um, getting better at dealing with this? Whether that's not just getting people into treatment, but is there ways that we're dealing with addictive processes and substances? Are we are we treating them as powerfully as we should, or no? Like how how do we actually get no. better at? managing these I think that the the ethics there's this is an ethical minefield mm-hmm. a number of years ago I wrote an article uh, after tea in the park yeah 2015 2016 I think it was I there I think, one of those years I think the, it was the last well it was the last uh-huh. one yeah and I wrote an article and I highlighted the lack of ethics in the collusive relationship between DF concerts and an alcohol sponsor after a young lad had Mm. attempted uh, to inject himself in a portaloo and bled out in the portaloo and died, uh, I got a bee in my bonnet about the relationship between the promoter uh-huh. And an alcohol sponsor, the ethics are all wrong. Right. And 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 I believe DF concerts who promote that festival ended it that year. Do you think it was off the basis of some of these incidents that were on the rise? Well, I I do believe because I spoke directly okay. with people at DF concerts that I know, uh-huh. and I said you need to end this relationship with an alcohol sponsor. Right. At the moment, I'm ready to write to some people yeah. at football clubs for carrying gambling sponsors on their shirts. Right, yeah. Uh, so Celtic Football Club have Daffabet yeah. and Magners on the back. I think it's time that we uh, started to challenge these clubs for having both alcohol and gambling sponsors. Right. On their shirts. Is that, I mean, is the reason that there's power, not just because they see it everywhere, but it's it's placed on quite strong archetypal figures that these people admire, that they love, that they look up to. And it's is that how it begins to get kind of insidious in their Of course. Brain? It's, right. it's, it's uh, normalised. Okay. But interestingly and ironically, uh, some of the people I've treated have been some of these players that have wore yeah yeah those jerseys with those sponsors yeah Uh, and I think as the clubs have to deal with managing players with these very yeah uh, insidious family damaging addictions like gambling 
Um, hopefully they'll sit up and take notice mm-hmm. and take their own inventory and stop yeah. that practice because it is unethical. Yeah. There's no question about it. So with, you know, it's similar in <clears throat> music in some ways. There's there's a glorification and normalization yeah. of substance um, abuse and misuse. Um, why, why are the industries or those most responsible for managing the assets to put it crassly whether it's the players the band why are they not promoting health within these industries and giving people a holistic view of their life to keep them moving well to keep them making better decisions for the bodies that will extend their careers and their playing life and their family life so the biggest initiative over the last couple of years uh, that I'd love to give some air, airplay to mm-hmm. at this moment is an organisation in England called Music Support. Music Support uh, started uh, because performers in the industry yeah. who are in recovery process themselves right. yeah. uh, have generated enough inter- in- interest uh, to have something like this set up. So Music Support are now doing the backstage areas at all the main oh, wow. festivals in England and okay. are in the process of coming to Scotland, being brought up to Scotland. Transmit or... To, for all the major oh, wow. festivals in Scotland as well, where they're setting up a safe area for performers, road crew, techs, yep. light men, so all of them come where they can get the support that they need not to use or drink or whatever the problematic uh, behavior uh-huh. is that they're, they're, they're being triggered yeah. to uh, act out on. Yeah. Uh, and it's a huge initiative. That's uh, brilliant. There are so many key performers without blowing their anonymity who mm-hmm. are in recovery mm-hmm. now in the UK. It's huge. Yeah. Um, the Libertines, it's 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 very it's in the public domain, so I don't mind right. talking about it. Yeah. Peter went to treatment, uh, in Thailand. Yeah. Uh, and they recorded uh, anthems of doomed youth, uh, at Karma Sound in Thailand. Yeah. Uh, and Chris Craker, uh has been a huge influence in Thailand. He's an ex-Sony CEO wow. uh, uh, who owns Karma Sound okay. Okay. Uh, in Thailand. Yeah. And he, Peter was in treatment right next to there. And, uh-huh. and, and so there's, there's a lot that's happening and it's almost reaching critical mass within the industry yeah. where... Um, the stigma's been removed about going into treatment. Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, and these, um, you know, a lot of the experiences that come from people who are perhaps going through treatment are, you know, they're facing down some of the things that they have have uh, carved off themselves, that they find deplorable in themselves. Like They're actually having the courage to look some of that down and include their, you know, their worst self back in. And there's something surely phenomenal about the kind of art that can be created by people who are willing to take on, you know, the the shadow that's in them as as Jung would unpack it, um, and that that must be exciting for what's possible now. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> 
the whole the whole issue for me about alchemy and alchemizing some of that dark content yeah uh, the Jungian shadow stuff yeah uh, is huge uh, my brother John wrote a book called Shopping Cart Soldiers that's taught in American universities hmm. uh, uh, about his serving in Vietnam oh. with the US Air Force, okay. which he was drafted to go when we moved there the first time he was drafted off to Vietnam, suffered PTSD in yep. Vietnam, brought it back uh, stateside when he came out of Vietnam had horrendous years medicating mm. it with alcohol, mm -hmm. got sober and wrote a book called Shopping Cart Soldiers, mm. uh, which is really uh, about the catharsis of alchemizing those dark experiences into yes. art yeah. and literature wow. and songs. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is such... This is such a deep vein to mine in the creative yeah. world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Anthems of Doomed Youth was the album that the Libertines wrote, composed and recorded when yeah. Peter Doherty was getting clean and sober at Hope House in Thailand. Yeah. And it's if you listen to some of the songs, some of the compositions on that album, it's his best work. Yeah. Uh, but you could go on ad infinitum. Yeah. The Primal Scream albums about where Bobby Gillespie's alchemizing mm -hmm. some of that stuff as well, uh, and using it as a cathartic outlet uh -huh. uh, for getting clean. Or, yeah. yeah. You know, this is where art this seems is, to source. If you're taking yes. it back, this is where the things that connect yes. with people on a far deeper level and a much yes. broader level. Yes. all sits in that yeah. in that space so yeah. how i mean you, you you must see how did people start alchemizing it and how did they go through that that process i think that we need to start we, we need to start putting on living workshop stroke camps for songwriting mm. for people who have had for performers and artists who have had uh, addictive issues that they've resolved right. or partly resolved yeah. or Feast because it. it's a huge vein of uh, I mean alchemy is about turning ordinary stuff into gold Yes. Uh, so that's why that's my favourite word to describe it because yeah. you're taking just your emotional bedrock experiences and you're, you're doing something that's just incredible yeah <laughs> yeah there's, that's one of the most, I mean, as you say, that's the, the magic in that group of um, those in recovery that something starts to change and it's the the intangible sense that there's another presence here or there's something else happening something else here. and there's yeah. change happening where people who take the darkest of human experience yeah. and they start to mine it and they find gold in there yeah. and they, they share that. and yeah. The Charles Bukowskis of the world. Right. Who's Charles Bukowski? Charles Bukowski is an American uh, literary figure who was down and out alcoholic and has written some of the best books out there wow. uh, about being a down and out drunk. Yeah. Um, and 
he's a pretty much a cult figure <laughs> in the literary world now, okay. and I would really suggest that you read some of his yeah, books. Yeah, okay. Because if you've not read any Charles Bukowski, you're in for a treat, <laughs> right. for sure. Right. Wow. <laughs> um, just thinking through, you know, what is there places that you would just recommend people to to look into um, as a, just kind of wrapping this up? What where would you recommend people check out for the most brilliant work in this stuff? Where could people connect with what you're doing or what you're passionate about? Well, there's Promise in London, where I trained. Yeah. There's Castle Craig. Uh, I did research there uh, and did three other establishments. When I was an undergraduate, they were part of my... I was doing outcomes research. Castle Craig is the uh, preferred treatment provider for the US military in Europe. Mm -hmm. The work they do is outstanding. Right. Um, Hope House in Thailand, Dara... Drug and Alcohol Rehab Asia yeah. in Thailand, um, Jericho House in Glasgow, Bethany House yeah. here in Edinburgh. Um, yeah, the works the 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 work is happening everywhere. Yeah, yeah, you know. Wow, um, it was really courageous. Just some of the stuff that you were chatting about, how you've move through it and, and drawn from it, put it into alchemy yourself. So um, you I appreciate that. I, I would say, you know, I first got clean and sober in 1991. That wasn't the end of the story. I've mm -hmm. had three relapses that mm -hmm. were painful, difficult things, but Christ fell with his cross three times, so I don't give myself a hard time. Uh, I'm just grateful uh, that I've been able to come back from them yeah. stronger, more aware, yeah. uh, better equipped. Uh, addiction's a, a, a syndrome or disease. I don't think it is a disease, but it's a syndrome yeah. uh, that involves relapse. It's a reality. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's a very high expectation to expect people to get it first time. Yeah. Uh, it's just unrealistic. Yeah, it does happen. It does happen. Yeah, uh, but our, our awareness and knowledge and interventions to treat it are getting better every day. Yeah, you know. Well, here's to where it will go. And, Absolutely, uh, Mark. Harry, thanks so thanks much for the conversation. Much. Absolutely, you're welcome. Well, I left that conversation with Harry feeling inspired and hopeful about what he's doing. Thank you for checking out the conversation. If you're enjoying the show, please give it a like, subscribe, share, review it, let people know about what we're up to here. It's a privilege to be doing this. We recorded this in Edinburgh, Scotland. Sam Gallagher helped get the music together and the images are by Melody Joyco. Thanks. Thanks.